0: The usual story goes that slavery was banned by the British in 1833 after a long campaign led by the moral reformer William Wilberforce. And what made that all the more remarkable was that capturing Africans, transporting them to the Caribbean and cruelly forcing them to work on sugar plantations was an enormously profitable business. It was, wrote the historian Simon Sharma, a Klondike of
1: money. But the thing is that for many decades now, many, perhaps most, historians who've studied this evil episode have come to the conclusion that the reality was entirely different. It was worse. The enslavement of African peoples was every bit as mind-numbingly brutal as we'd always thought. But the British didn't ban it for moral reasons. They only finished with it when it wasn't making a profit anymore. (music)
0: The enslavement and forced labour of millions of African peoples is a crime against humanity, one of the most important stories in history. It's a crime for which no kind of appropriate reparation has yet been paid. But the British make a morally bad story infinitely worse by priding themselves that they were the first to ban it and that they did so because they were the good guys, the ones who first came to their moral senses.
1: Well, neither of these two beliefs is true. We should begin by honouring those who suffered from this atrocity. 12 million people were shipped across the Atlantic as slaves between the 16th and the 19th centuries. That's 12 million. Usually you were captured by a neighbouring African people, either in a war or in a raid. Either way, your captors knew exactly what they were doing. They marched you to the coast where the Europeans had their fortified trading posts. And if you survived as far as the coast, there they sold you in exchange for guns or alcohol or textiles or the many other manufactured goods these sickly white people brought with them.
0: Sooner or later, you were herded aboard a sailing vessel. You can find out more about the horrors of what happened next in historian Emma Christopher's book, Slave Ship Sailors and Their Captive Cargoes. If you were on a small ship, there might be a hundred of you, On the larger ships, more like 600. Two-thirds would be men and boys. On average, between one in seven and one in eight of you would die aboard. It depended whether disease broke out or whether any of you attempted a rebellion. Aboard the Accra, a Danish vessel that made the voyage in 1781, there was both disease and a rebellion, and 265 out of 592 captives died. And so did 21 of the 48 crew. About one in 10 slave voyagers experienced a revolt
1: by the enslaved. Occasionally, if you rebelled quickly enough, you might escape and get back to shore. But mostly rebellions ended with floggings and hangings and throwings overboard. And of course, it was your first trip, and you didn't know that. You were probably chained two by two below decks with barely room to lie down and just a bucket to share between you. Well, you can imagine the rest. You were fed beans, corn, perhaps yams, probably once a day. One naval surgeon who boarded a slaver, as we shall see, found below decks flooded with blood and excrement. And then there were the rapes and the sadism. Actually, some of the crew were themselves coloured men, occasionally Native Americans or Indians, very occasionally women. Some were even enslaved themselves. Most were clearly having a very hard time, if not as bad as you were, Chances were they'd been crimped, forced into it.
0: Infamously, in 1781, the British slave ship Zong limped towards Jamaica, having already lost 62 of its more than 400 enslaved people. Somehow there was a mix-up of navigation and the ship overshot Jamaica, having to turn back and sail into the wind. With water running out, the crew threw a total of 142 enslaved people overboard, intending to report that they had run out of water and then claim insurance. The insurers refused to pay and, after a series of trials, were, as usual, able to wriggle out of any payment. Nobody was charged with the murder of the Africans. It has since become a notorious example of British brutality. At the time, the papers hardly bothered to cover the
1: story. After a month at sea or two, or three, or perhaps six months, depending on the weather, you'd be taken up on deck for inspection. Now you'd be divided into prime and refuse. If you were prime, you'd be washed and your skin polished, ready for sale, To make you look a bit healthier. Another job the sailors hated doing. You had a 25% chance of landing on a British island in the Caribbean. More than a million Africans landed on Jamaica alone, far more than any other destination. Half a million were sold in tiny Barbados, just 166 square miles in size. In the second half of the 18th century, an average of 25,000 Africans were being shipped to the British Caribbean every year. Jamaica was taking more and more of them.
0: Prime lots were auctioned first, and the refuse sold off in job lots at the end. If you'd been sold on Jamaica, there was a chance you'd be put aboard another ship and taken on to the Spanish in Cuba or the French in Saint-Domingue, and there, sold again. Either way, three years after you landed, one in three of you would be dead.
1: If you'd stayed on Jamaica, you'd be herded off to one of the island's plantations. Now you've found yourself in a complicated new world. It's been explored by Michael Creighton in his book Testing the Chains. Life on a sugar plantation, he discovered, was more like the old African world than you might have expected. So perhaps it's important for us to stop once again and say here that while we're trying to get a clearer picture of what enslavement was like and trying to be a bit more accurate than the story we're usually told, we're in no way trying to say that enslavement was anything other than an appalling crime against humanity. It was something very much akin to the Holocaust and the forced labour of the concentration camps under the Nazis. Anyone who tries to tell you anything else has got something to hide.
0: Always more men than women were shipped from Africa. If you were a woman, you were more likely than not to find yourself sent out into the sugarcane fields. You'd probably work nine hours a day, but much longer during the harvesting, which could last up to half the year. You'd be divided into work teams depending on your age and physical condition. You'd probably be organized by enslaved men, quite likely Creoles. They were men who'd been born into enslavement on the island. They had privileges of a kind, better food, better clothing, a bigger hut. They might even ride a horse. Sometimes they kept a string of wives. And, of course, they had a whip.
1: Getting pregnant was discouraged because, of course, you couldn't work so hard. So there was no let-up from the daily labour if you were pregnant. And if you made it through to childbirth, you'd be straight back out to work. Probably your baby left in a corner of the field with nothing but a lump of sugar cane to keep it quiet. It's very difficult to get reliable figures since many births were simply never recorded. But one respected historian, Barry Higman, gives figures in the range of nearly 40% of children dying before they reached their first birthday. Almost two thirds of those had died within their first month. And those figures come from the 1810s when conditions were supposed to have improved a little. It turns out to be one of the most important findings in the whole of this gruesome story.
0: A few women managed to become domestic servants in the white people's houses, but that, of course, had plenty of obvious risks of its own. It's no wonder that more of the enslaved died each year than were being born. The birth rate was roughly 2% and the death rate 4%. Actually, despite all the terrible hardships, that was not so very different from the statistics of London, at least until the middle of the 18th century. Both populations only kept growing because of new arrivals. But the fact that more of the enslaved were dying each year than were being born, is another absolutely key fact in the story. <laughs>
1: One in seven or eight of the enslaved died between Africa and the Caribbean aboard ship. Many more died within a year of arriving. Of all those who arrived, about one in 25 died each year. That was more than were being born and far more than were surviving their first year of life. British slave owners were treating their enslaved work people so badly that they had no option but to keep on importing new ones. And that turns out, as we shall see, to be key to the collapse of the whole system. If
0: you made it across the Atlantic and through your first months, you'd notice that many of the men had carved out a better position for themselves than the rest of the enslaved. Not only the drivers in the fields, but also those who'd acquired skills as carpenters or as part of the long and complex business of turning cane into unrefined muscovado sugar. They could probably negotiate their hours of work and might even get paid a little for overtime. In fact, quite a few of your fellow enslaved might find themselves hired out to other plantations. Some could even hire themselves out, although the whites took a lot of the pay they earned. If you were lucky enough to be on a plantation where there was a Baptist or Methodist or Moravian mission, some of the men might become deacons and be allowed to lead meetings and preach. You'd notice that these men usually came from the aristocratic or kingly families back in Africa. Nothing had changed there. A tiny minority, tiny, earned enough to buy their freedom.
1: Among yourselves, you probably spoke a kind of English. It was because you were originally from so many different African peoples that you had no other language in common. You lived in tiny wattle-and-daub huts with earth floors, very like, in fact, what you'd grown up in back home. Many of the enslaved were also able to spend a few hours each week growing vegetables on little plots of land you might find yourself being made to work also on the plot belonging to the man who organised you out in the fields, gay, okay, just like home. At least growing your own food, you'd be able to add to the rations the whites gave you. You'd be given clothes, usually cottons, that had come, though of course you didn't know it, from similarly exploited workpeople in India. A few were dressed up in fancy tartans made in a mysterious far-off place called Scotland. In fact, you might find yourself in one of those plantations where all the enslaved were kitted out in tartans like a kind of uniform. Other than that, you had hardly any possessions. It was quite common to visit enslaved communities in other plantations, either with permission or secretly. Some had lovers on other plantations. There was always a tiny few who were simply missing, usually the same ones. So news
0: travelled around. Occasionally, very occasionally, you'd hear there'd been a rebellion among the enslaved. While well, there was always low-level troublemaking, machinery got damaged, animals got poisoned, sometimes the cane fields somehow caught a light. Even those men with privileges, sometimes known as quashies, might quietly be sabotaging the work of the plantation. Sometimes there was talk of rights and liberties, but the evidence is that few took much notice because it was white talk, the kind of thing the planters and their managers discussed in their houses. What every enslaved person wanted was simply to escape from plantation work, to be able to get on and cultivate their own plot of land and bring up a family.
1: Full-scale rebellions were rare. Jamaica was the worst. There was trouble there in the 1730s in 1742, 1745, in 1760, 65, 66, in 1776, 1791, 1795, 1828, 1831. Most of these rebellions involved just a few hundred of the enslaved. Sometimes it was the Maroon peoples who were escaped slaves, many in fact descended from slaves in previous centuries, who farmed up in the remote highlands and eventually actually signed treaties with the whites and helped put down revolts among the enslaved.
0: Recently, some have tried to argue that rebellion by the enslaved was one reason the system was brought to an end. The sad truth is that with a single exception, a rebellion on the French island Saint-Domingue in 1791, which we'll come back to, there's really no evidence that that's true. We know from detailed research by Michael Creighton that most of the enslaved refused to take part in rebellions. Many, in fact, helped put them down. When you stop to think about it, it's no surprise, because when rebellion failed, as it always did, with one single exception, Sander which we'll come back to, the result was flogging and executions. Most of the enslaved chose to hold on to the small freedoms they'd won to cultivate their plot and visit a lover, a little larger hut, a little more payment, rather than risk everything.
1: But of course the threat of violence for many, probably most, was never far away. Historian Trevor Bernard's biography of plantation manager Thomas Thistlewood records that in the man's 37 years in Jamaica, he assaulted 138 enslaved women, a total of 3,852 times. He raped them in every conceivable setting, whether they were young girls or pregnant women. Sometimes he was part of a gang. We know because he kept a journal recording it all in his schoolboy Latin. As for the enslaved men, he devised all kinds of torture. One runaway was gagged, locked in shackles, covered in molasses and left out all night for the mosquitoes. Others were flogged and salt, pickle, lime juice and pepper rubbed into their wounds. Other tortures are too obscene to bear thinking about.
0: Thistlewood may or may not have been worse than other whites on the islands. Let's take one other particularly horrible example and then let it stand for the rest. Not least because we shall come back to it later. In may eighteen twenty nine, Kitty Hilton was an enslaved woman working as a household servant. That day Kitty went to her master to ask him what she should prepare for supper. Turkey, he replied. So Kitty went out into the yard and killed a turkey. But then the man changed his mind. He didn't fancy turkey after all. But by then the bird was already dead. Enraged, he pinned Kitty to a dresser and kicked her for an hour, telling her he wished he could see her corpse. He then called in another of his enslaved house servants, Charles, and ordered him to flog Kitty in the cowpen until he'd cut all the flesh off her. Kitty was then sent down to a stream to wash and was pelted with stones and chased with a stick by her owner as she came back. Well, when she came down with a fever, she was thrown into the plantation guardhouse with her hands tied behind her back. Somehow, despite her terrible injuries, Kitty survived, and we only know all the details because she brought charges against her owner. Though, of course, she lost the case, because the enslaved witnesses were just too afraid to give evidence. Her owner, after all, was the Reverend George Wilson Bridges, rector of the largest parish on the island, where incidentally much later Marcus Garvey and Bob Marley were born. And that's not the last we'll hear of the Reverend Mr Bridges.
1: Now, the fact that Kitty was able to bring charges at all tells us that this was a particularly outrageous assault. Now, we've tried to create an image of enslavement as much more complex than we usually think, but that's not in any way to try to argue that it wasn't as bad as people make out. Enslavement was a gross violation of every human right, and its shame stains the British above all to this day. What this narrative makes clear, in fact, is that enslavement on the British Caribbean islands was worse than it first appears. Not just because field workers were flogged until they dropped and women were routinely raped, There was a great deal of flexibility in the system with enlightened management it could have evolved into something that was much less oppressive the fact was that in some places it did by the early 19th century for example the death rate in barbados and antigua was not very far from the birth rate here the enslaved populations grew much of their own food and their population was almost beginning to grow naturally without the need for any more of the terrible capture and shipment In the southern colonies of the United States, self-sustaining enslaved populations were well established by the end of the 18th century. The enslaved on French and Spanish islands were treated with much more humanity than the British. That's not to say that enslavement in these conditions was any more justifiable. It just wasn't as blindly inhumane. The bitter
0: irony is that better treatment might have kept enslavement going for longer, as it did in the United States. But the system on the British Caribbean islands was needlessly Unaccountably cruel when it simply didn't need to be to keep the plantations working. In the end, in fact, it was the endless cruelty, the high death rate, and the continual requirement to buy newly enslaved people that was, as we shall see, the main reason that the British West Indies sugar enslavement came to an end. It makes it even worse as a crime against humanity. Uh-huh.
1: In many surprising ways, enslavement in the British Caribbean islands reflected life back in the African villages, but it was overlaid with such abominable cruelty and oppression that the birth rate was at rock bottom and the death rate sky high. The only way to keep the plantations going was by continually importing newly enslaved peoples, and that proved to be their downfall.
0: Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's publicity guru Bernard Ingham once announced that, quote, The only thing British kids need to know about the slave trade is that we ended it. He means, of course, the British. Well, we can already agree what a juvenile statement that is. Anyway, Mr. Ingham, you're wrong. The Danish banned the slave trade in 1792, 15 years before the British... And it had been banned in one after another of the northern states of America, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut and others between 1763 and 1804. And the slave trade had been completely banned in the new United States in 1787, though the new Congress left a period of 21 years until the ban would come into effect. But of course, pompous English politicians not to speak of school textbooks, have for generations been puffing up the British because they supposedly banned the slave trade in a great outburst of public breast-beating and saintly morality. They banned it even though, we're told, it was against
1: their economic interests. What heroes! Well, whatever the textbooks say, and even if that's what the politicians want to believe, plenty of academic historians have argued for decades that it wasn't like that. We believe the evidence now shows plainly that enslavement was not ended by the British for moral reasons. It was ended because the British planters were too incompetent and brutal to look after their workforce and make the system profitable. They simply worked them to death.
0: Usually nowadays, this story of British anti-slavery virtue is embodied in the person of one man, William Wilberforce MP and Saint. Quotes, his extraordinary combination of humanity, evangelism, philanthropy and political skill made him one of the most influential Britons in history. His achievements were greater than those of most of the occupants of the highest offices in the land. So wrote William Hague, one of Mrs Thatcher's successors as leader of the British Tory party, in his 582-page biography of William Wilberforce. Actually, this St. William of Wilberforce story is a much more recent tale than you'd imagine. Back in 1907, the first centenary of the banning of the slave trade, that's the transport of newly enslaved people across the Atlantic, nobody was interested in Wilberforce. The Times barely mentioned the story. Wilberforce's house in Clapham was up for sale that year and nobody wanted it. By the end of the year, the council had knocked it down, saying it was of no historical interest. It wasn't until 1913 that Wilberforce's role began to attract interest, and that was in a French textbook that made it very clear he was far from the only campaigner for abolition. Five
1: volumes of what we might call Wilberforce Hagiography, meaning a biography of such uncritical blandness it resembles those medieval lives of saints, were published by two of Wilberforce's clergymen's sons in 1838. It was just five years after his death. It outraged others, even in the abolition movement, by giving all the credit to their father. The two clergymen had in fact to issue a public apology. <laughs> the first modern-ish biography of the man only appeared in 1923. It was written by the new Oxford professor of colonial history, Reginald Coupland. He loved Wilberforce. Quotes, no Englishman has ever done more to evoke the conscience of the British people and to elevate and ennoble British public life. Actually, the quote comes from a notice written anonymously by Coupland that appeared in the Wilberforce birthplace in Hull. This was in 1933, the anniversary of the final abolition of British slavery, as opposed to the slave trade. In 1933, in fact, there was much more fuss than in 1907. There was a season of talks on the BBC, Monday evenings, 7.30, including one by Coupland, who had just finished his first history of the anti-slavery movement there was a service at St Paul's and, of course, a season of events in Hull. Well,
0: it's no surprise that the Brits were more anxious to make a show about the abolition of slavery by 1933. By now, half a generation after the First War, the British Empire was looking extremely shaky. Within 20 years, India would be independent. Within 30, so would most of the African and Caribbean colonies. The forces of dictatorship, communism and overwhelming American capitalism were winding up. The important thing was to emphasise the notion that the British Empire was a moral empire, a great international enterprise to do good around the world. It was civilising, improving, Christian, and should be defended at all costs. The only thing you needed to know about that rather embarrassing episode of enslavement was that the British had ended it first. Actually... By the 1930s, this kind of moralising history had already fallen out of fashion with most British historians, but for the historians of empire and especially those in Oxford like Coupland, it was still the heart of the story. The British were a great moral people. For most British people, this is
1: apparently still the story we want to believe. However, among the undergraduates up in Oxford that year in 1933 was a 22-year-old Trinidadian. He was in the second year of reading history on a scholarship at what later became St Catherine's College. Eric Williams, slightly deaf after a football accident, was a friend of the older Trinidadian playwright C.L.R. James. Well, Williams did exceedingly well at Oxford. In fact, he got the top first in his year. James, who was working on a play about Toussaint Louverture, who led that 1791 revolt on Saint-Domingue, suggested that his young friend Eric now write a doctoral thesis on the abolition of slavery. Well, Williams had no money, so he applied for a fellowship at All Souls, a college only for graduates and senior fellows, which supposedly recruited only the creme de la creme of academics. He should have known better. All Souls' library was paid for by the Codrington family, with money they'd made from their slave plantations on Antigua and Barbuda. A few years before, All Souls had turned down Lewis Namier for a fellowship, By 1933, Namian was among the most celebrated British historians. But you see, he was Jewish. Trinidadian Eric Williams had no chance of becoming a fellow of all souls.
0: In the end, one of the London livery companies, the Leather Sellers, stumped up £50 and Williams was able to get started. He completed his thesis quickly in just two years. It drew on statistical work done in the 1920s by an American historian, Lowell Raggetz, a man now so obscure he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Also on work done in 1906 by a German economist, Franz Hochstetter. In the early 1930s, Hochstetter had joined Hitler's Nazi party, and although he'd been thrown out of the Nazi party in 1936, William sensibly, writing in 1938, hardly mentioned him in his footnotes. Williams entitled his thesis, The Economic Aspect of the Abolition of the West Indian Slave Trade and Slavery. And it was dynamite.
1: The British have always loved the story that their empire was not only bigger than everyone else's, but also in some way better. The enslavement of millions of Africans is therefore, as you can imagine, a bit of an embarrassment. So the Brits square the circle by loudly proclaiming that, well, everyone enslaved people, which wasn't true. But the Brits were the first to ban it, which wasn't true either. And that somehow the Brits banned it for high moral reasons, even though they were making a stack of money out of it. Which wasn't true either.
0: Or at least this last twist to the tale got added in the first quarter of the 20th century. It was, of course, a convenient myth at a time when the British Empire was fast collapsing. Surely, the argument went, Brits should sacrifice their lives to defend their empire because
1: it was such a moral enterprise. But then, in 1938, a young Trinidadian historian at Oxford submitted his doctoral thesis. It was about the ending of enslavement. Now, colonial history at Oxford in 1938 was dominated by the professor of colonial history, Reginald Coupland the man who'd written the first modern-ish biography of William Wilberforce, portraying him as the great British moral saint who led this whole great British moral campaign against enslavement. As recently as 1935, Coupland had written that Wilberforce and his fellow abolitionists were, quote, certain proof that not merely individuals, but the common will, the state itself, can rise on occasions to the heights of pure unselfishness.
0: When it became clear that Professor Koplan would be one of the examiners for his doctoral thesis, Williams was persuaded to tone his conclusions down a bit. You see, in his thesis, Williams argued that the abolition of slavery had had very little to do with an unselfish or moral campaign by Wilberforce or the Common will, the state, or anyone else. What Williams argued was that, quotes, "The reason for the attack on slavery was not only that the West Indian economic system was vicious, but that it was also so unprofitable that for this reason alone, its destruction was inevitable. What the young Eric Williams was fundamentally saying was that slavery had been ended primarily and cynically not for moral reasons, but because it wasn't making money anymore. Now,
1: when you write a doctoral thesis, you have to get through a viva, an interview in which two experts grill you on what you've written. Well, it's hard to imagine what William's examination viva with Professor Cooplin was like. Actually, it's not. I had exactly the same experience with a distinguished historian I disagreed with in my thesis. I was told to leave the room and walk around the garden while he calmed down, and his fellow examiner told him to pull himself together. But the upshot of these circumstances is that the distinguished historian makes quite sure the young scholar's thesis will never be published. Well, (laughs) I quit academic life.
0: Eric Williams eventually got work at Howard, Washington's black university, and in 1944 got his thesis published in the States as Capitalism and Slavery. Six years after he'd submitted his thesis... Uh, and John's being published this year. It's 36 years after he finished his thesis. You can find it on our website and claim a whopping 45% discount. By the time William's book was published, he had no qualms at all about attacking Professor Coupland. He wrote, Historians have no excuse for continuing to wrap the real interests in confusion, by which he meant what he called the high moral plane politicians always use to hide their real intentions he went on of this deplorable tendency professor coupland of oxford university is a notable example i bet that felt good
1: now the point of this story is that astonishingly quickly most historians agreed with eric williams that coupland was a dinosaur and williams had been absolutely right about enslavement For many decades, it was Williams' interpretation that enslavement was basically ended because it was no longer profitable that most academic historians believed. Poor old Professor Cooplin died in 1948 with much of his life's work in ruins. He had, Williams had written, quotes sacrificed scholarship to sentimentality. It's really extraordinary that generations of school students have ever since then still been taught Cooplin's old stuff about Wilberforce and the ending of slavery without ever being told that since the 1940s, many, perhaps most academics, have simply not believed a word of it. The BBC's bite-sized website still gives Wilberforce all the credit. That makes it, what, 80 years out of date? Nearly 80 years.
0: (laughs) To be fair to the BBC and to the many others who, like William Hague, tried to cash in on the 2007 anniversary of the abolition by publishing yet more fawning books on Wilberforce... Eric Williams's work was, for a generation in the 1980s, 90s and 2000s, the subject of deep and bitter debate. Haig mentions Williams just once on page 353, and he brushes this whole furious academic debate away with an airy reference to something someone said in Parliament in 1807. But any professional historian will agree that it's quite exceptional find a book like Williams that was written in the 1940s and is still at the very centre of scholarly
1: debate. Now to some extent the controversy came about partly because Williams's argument had shifted a bit between the writing of his thesis and the publication of the book. It became more of a well more of a Marxist interpretation had a whole lot of extra material about the extent to which slavery had paid for the industrial revolution and these bits have been particularly controversial. But Williams' central
0: argument that enslavement was no longer profitable has also had both detractors and defenders. Since 1944, hundreds of books have been written about the economics of this whole period. Vast arrays of statistics are now available that Williams could not possibly have had. So not surprisingly, many of the details of his argument
1: no longer stand up. But we'll try to show you that the best and latest research pretty solidly backs Williams up. And especially if you take a much broader view of the subject than those historians and politicians who've tried to rubbish what Williams argued. The point is that Eric Williams had used his nose. My thesis supervisor used to say that a historian had to use his nose. He might not yet have the evidence to prove his point. He might sniff a story, get the sense of where the truth might lie, nowhere to look... Williams' nose had pointed him to the fundamental conclusion that enormous political and economic changes like the abolition of enslavement never take place just because of moral campaigns. Well, look through the whole of history and you'll find that they always take place because of politics and economics. Eric Williams simply argued that the abolition of slavery had been no exception. The question for every historian studying the end of enslavement, even today, is therefore, was Eric Williams Right. And
0: we'll start trying to answer that question next time at the History Café. And John, I do love your historian's nose.
1: For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
0: Or contact us on social media at Pod.